Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansaro, Managing Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Between now and 2040, the number of people with Parkinson's disease is expected to double worldwide, reaching 14.2 million by 2040. With April being Parkinson's Disease Awareness Month, on this episode of Managed Carecast, we're speaking with one of the many researchers involved in a multi-center international study that aims to end Parkinson's disease by investigating the biomarkers and other information collected from a wide spectrum of people, those without Parkinson's disease, those with very early disease, and those with more advanced disease. The study, the Parkinson's Disease Progression Markers Initiative, or PPMI, from the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, originally launched in 2010. It has more than 1,400 people with the disease who have contributed samples at sites around the world. It is now expanding, including an online component, where it wants to collect information from more than 100,000 people, particularly those with a first-degree relative with Parkinson, those with a genetic mutation, or those who act out their dreams in their sleep. To find out more, we spoke with Dr. Roseanne Dobkin, a clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychiatry at the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School at Rutgers University. So welcome to Managed Carecast, Dr. Dobkin. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here this afternoon. Before we get started about this latest research project from the Michael J. Fox Parkinson's Disease Research Foundation, can you uh, just describe yourself and what you do at Rutgers University and the medical school at Rutgers? I am happy to. So I am a clinical psychologist by training and I am a professor of psychiatry um, in the Department of Psychiatry at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, which is part of Rutgers University. And I am a mental health researcher in Parkinson's disease. So for the past 20 years or so, I have been working on um, developing and evaluating new treatments for many of the common and functionally relevant neuropsychiatric aspects of the disease process like depression and anxiety. Um, Because as we all know, Parkinson's disease is not just a movement disorder. You know, unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of people living with PD also experiencing debilitating non-motor complications like depression and anxiety. So I've really dedicated my career to learning more about how to best optimize treatment for those concerns and enhance overall quality of life. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is because I know that the um, foundation has had a research project uh, in existence for about 12 years called PPMI, uh, the Parkinson's Progressive Markers Initiative. Did I get that right? You did. (laughs) Why is it called a study that could change everything? Oh, so that is such an amazing question. Um, And I really welcome the opportunity to talk with you about this new ambitious chapter that the foundation will be embarking on to really realize its mission of accelerating better treatments um, and a cure for Parkinson's. So first, I want to take a little bit of a step back and talk about PPMI. Um, So PPMI first launched in 2010, um, and it's really a landmark um, clinical study 
that has contributed to a major expansion in the understanding of Parkinson's complex biology. You know, the insights and the scientific advances from PPMI have really had a major impact on clinical trial design and have accelerated therapeutic development for the Parkinson's community. You know, in fact, across the last several years, there have been more than 20 drug trials to slow or stop the progression of Parkinson's that have used PPMI methods um, and data to transform the robust pipeline of therapies. Um, and PPMI data has been cited in more than 400 scientific papers to date. Um, now we're really on a mission to expand and to further understand you know, Parkinson's risk, who gets it, who doesn't get it, and why. Um, and we really need the help of everyone with and without Parkinson's disease to help us do that. Um, and we're really gonna be harnessing the power of technology in order to enroll and study as many as 100,000 people online, in addition to individuals who are participating in PPMI and contributing data in clinic. So the online component is new. Were people only participating in centers before? Correct. Um, the online component to PPMI recently launched in July of 2021. Um, so prior to that, individuals were participating um, at clinical sites. And individuals are going to continue to participate at clinical sites around the world. We currently have 50 sites across 12 countries. And in addition to the incredibly valuable information that our volunteers are able to provide in clinic, we are now able to expand our reach and include you know, tens of thousands of more volunteers who will be able to contribute data online. Some of those people, actually the overwhelming majority of those people will contribute online data um, as their primary method of participation in the study. Some will also then be invited to participate in other aspects of PPMI, such as coming into, coming into clinic in order to complete other tests and measures. That was actually one of my questions. Um, I know that in research studies, there's typically no personal benefit to patients, but are you saying that if someone enrolls in the online study and they don't have Parkinson, but there are questionnaires that they answer online somehow indicate that maybe they might have something that is signaling what is called a prodromal phase or an early phase, or they're advised to see a movement disorder specialist. Are you saying uh, someone will reach out to them and invite them into a study further and, you know, in a center? So a really, really interesting question. You know, so to provide additional background and context, you know, PPMI is now placing a major emphasis on, you know, studying all these people from diverse backgrounds who have not been diagnosed with Parkinson's, but yes, including individuals who may have risk factors for the development of Parkinson's disease, including, you know, individuals who maybe have a family history or a close relative um, that's living with Parkinson's disease, uh, people who have a very specific type um, of sleep disturbance known as REM sleep behavior disorder, in which individuals actually act out their dreams in their sleep, you know, people who have smell loss, you know, or other genes that have been linked to the development 
of Parkinson's. Um, so we're very interested in studying these individuals. Um, and we're also very interested in studying individuals who have, um, you know, maybe no connection to Parkinson's disease, you know, especially men over the age of 60. You know, most of these people will never get Parkinson's, but some of them might. And we really want to understand, you know, what distinguishes these individuals so we can identify them at the earliest stages. So going back to your question, there will be some people that report clinical features that we would like to, that are associated with Parkinson's risk that we would like to study more closely. So some of those individuals will be invited to come into clinical sites and to provide additional data in person so we can better understand why certain individuals may move on to develop Parkinson's in the future and other individuals who possess similar characteristics do not. Can you just describe a little bit more about what that in-clinic experience looks like if a participant is called in? Yes, I would be happy to. You know, so as I mentioned, we are very interested in studying individuals who may have certain risk factors you know, for the development of Parkinson's disease, because some of those people will go on to develop PD, um, but the overwhelming majority of people will not. And we really want to learn why some people with risk factors develop PD and others don't. So individuals who possess certain clinical features will be invited into clinic and they will be evaluated more comprehensively. They will complete a whole host of tests and assessments, including um, neurological exams, cognitive testing. They will provide blood and urine samples. They may complete MRIs, um, as well as a type of imaging known as um, a DAT scan. Some individuals will also participate in skin biopsies and we collect spinal fluid as well. And just to clarify, that's for research purposes. They don't get those results, correct? That is correct. All of this is for research purposes so we can better understand the biology of Parkinson's disease um, as well as biomarkers that are going to be relevant for inclusion in future clinical trials. All of this information, in addition, will lead to important breakthroughs and insights regarding um, future therapeutic development and ultimate prevention. I guess this is kind of a two-part question. When someone is enrolling online and they're going through the process of answering or screening questions, are they asked, do you want to be contacted personally by a researcher? And maybe that's yes or no. And then um, more broadly, how is patient privacy protected in this age of, you know, all of the hacking and phishing and malicious, you know, healthcare data breaches that we've seen, especially recently? You know, another, you know, series of, of great questions. So yes, absolutely. Everybody who, um, you know, signs up to participate in the online portion of PPMI, they will go over it and sign, you know, an informed consent that explains, you know, the, the purpose of the study and the risks and benefits of participation. And it also explains all of the many safeguards that are in place 
in order to protect their privacy and their confidentiality. Um, and when they sign up for PPMI online, they are also granting permission to be contacted for other opportunities that may be of interest to them. That being said, while individuals are granting permission for future contact, all of their personal contact information is kept completely separate from their data. Um, so there is absolutely no way um, that researchers would be able to, um, you know, link up individual responses that are provided to questionnaires with an individual's, you know, name or, or phone number or email address. There's only select few individuals that have access to that contact information. So researchers that will be using this data will not be able to identify the participants that are associated with the data. Um, it's all anonymous. So while anonymous research data is available in real time to qualified professionals, um, identifying information is never shared. All data and personal information is safeguarded by state-of-the-art security protocols. Got it, that makes sense. Going back to the clinical aspects. Um, in the literature, I've seen references to something called the golden year. In the year before um, the disease progresses to the point where, you know, symptomatic therapy is needed. What is the golden year exactly? And why is that important? So the golden year is really a critical time of about one year for when a patient can be diagnosed with early Parkinson's based on mild classic motor features until they truly require symptomatic therapy. And it's really the best window of opportunity to learn more about the disease and to test the impact of new and potentially promising disease modifying therapies before other medications are introduced that could alter study results. So for this reason, I really can't overstate the importance of identifying people with PD um, as early as possible and referring them to studies like PPMI before prescribing standard Parkinson's medications. What are some of the most exciting trials, I guess, given that opportunity in that year? What are some of the most exciting um, studies that are being conducted right now for people with early stage Parkinson's? So, of, of course, I'm going to talk um, about PPMI because of the potential that it holds to really continue to advance our understanding of, you know, Parkinson's biology um, and Parkinson's risk and really the ability to use that information to develop further, um, you know, disease modifying therapies and ultimately present I'm sorry, ultimately prevent Parkinson's in the future. Um, you know, that being said, there are also other studies looking at, you know, specific um, disease modifying agents that have been formed, have been informed by many of the lessons learned from PPMI. Um, there are also studies of exercise interventions and the like as well. So there are many, many, many studies out there. And again, PPMI has informed the design of many of those trials. In these very early phases of the disease, what are some of the psychiatric symptoms that might be present or maybe might get confused for other diseases, maybe dementias or, or other things? 
So, so there are many, um, you know, non-motor or neuropsychiatric symptoms that are part of the Parkinson's disease experience. So for example, depression and anxiety are very common neuropsychiatric symptoms that may actually you know, predate the onset of motor symptoms by years um, or even decades. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's also this very type, um, very specific type of sleep disturbance known as REM sleep behavior disorder that is one of the strongest predictors uh, of the future development of Parkinson's disease. You know, so during the REM phase of sleep, when we dream, the muscles in the body, you know, usually enter a state of temporary paralysis. You know, in a person with RBD, this paralysis is incomplete or even completely absent. So the person acts out their dreams and sometimes that occurs in a dramatic or violent way. So, you know, we, we see that quite often in early Parkinson's disease. You know, we also see, you know, mild cognitive impairment or more significant, you know, cognitive changes and challenges as well. Um, in addition to some of those neuropsychiatric features though, there are other non-motor symptoms, things like smell loss um, and constipation that may be early warning signs or risk factors associated with the development of Parkinson's. And we really want to study individuals who are living with those symptoms much more closely. I would think the idea of, you know, depression and anxiety coming into play here years or decades before, is that very confounding right now, given that you know, survey after survey shows the past couple of years, Americans are pretty stressed, anxious, depressed, given the pandemic and, and other things. Does that make it just more confusing for clinicians and what do they do about it? So when you say, you know, more confusing for clinicians and, um, you know, what do they do about it? Do you mean in terms of treatment or in terms of evaluating overall Parkinson's risk? Evaluating overall Parkinson's risk. So we are really learning, you know, together as a scientific community, um, you know, the, the best way to evaluate risk um, and what factors carry the greatest weight. So it's, it's really not just one thing. And what we're hoping to learn, you know, over the course of PPMI is which factors are most relevant and how much variance do they account for? How much risk do they really account for with respect to future disease progression? So we really don't know yet you know, we have some ideas, um, but we don't know for 100%, you know, what the most important risk factors are. You know, we recognize that there are conditions like, you know, RBD um, and smell loss um, that likely signal higher levels of risk. We also recognize that mental health concerns like depression and anxiety convey risk in addition. And what we're hoping to learn after studying, you know, tens of thousands of individuals in the context of PPMI is, you know, which factors convey the highest amount of risk, you know, what distinguishes individuals who have, um, you know, certain risk factors and go on to develop Parkinson's disease from individuals who have those risk factors and don't go on to develop Parkinson's disease? And how can we utilize you know, 
the, the features that distinguish those two groups of individuals um, to, to shed light on you know, clinical trial design and future therapeutic development. So we're not looking just at depression and anxiety um, because of course, there are many things going on in the world right now that would lead to you know, heightened levels um, of depression and anxiety for, for many of us, but we're really looking at different combination of risk factors. And again, big picture, what distinguishes, what differentiates individuals who have these risk factors and go on to develop Parkinson's, what distinguishes them from individuals um, who have their risk factors and don't go on to develop Parkinson's disease. Oh, well, that makes sense. Thank you for making that clear. Where is treatment lagging for these non-motor symptoms for patients with early stage disease? So I think the, the good news is that, you know, over the past 10 years or so, we've really seen, um, you know, significant advances made in um, treatment development and evaluation for many of these neuropsychiatric aspects of Parkinson's disease. So we now know that there are many different antidepressants um, that are available that can be beneficial for depression and anxiety in people with Parkinson's disease. And there's also a very important role for non-pharmacological approaches um, and for psychotherapy. So for example, I've researched um, a type of talk therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy and researched um, you know, modified versions of the approach for treating depression and anxiety in Parkinson's. And we have found you know, very nice results significant reductions in mental health concerns when individuals have received, you know, 10 to 14 sessions um, of cognitive behavioral therapy um, compared to individuals who have received, you know, other types of treatment or, or no treatment for their mental health concerns. And we have found um, cognitive behavioral therapy to be effective and beneficial if it's administered in person or remotely using telemedicine applications like phone-based therapy or web-based video conferencing. So psychotherapy as well as antidepressant medications and their combination can be quite helpful for the treatment of depression and anxiety and Parkinson's and other non-pharmacological approaches as well, like exercise and movement-based therapies also show significant promise and potential. One other thing I wanna ask you is I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, how does this study help promote diversity, equity, and inclusion? It's my understanding that most studies of patients with Parkinson are you know, white, European background. And so especially the online component of this study, how does this increase understanding of how Parkinson behaves in populations of color? So the online component of the study is really going to give us an opportunity to enroll individuals from diverse backgrounds who maybe otherwise you know, would not be able to participate in research, you know, due to access barriers. It's an opportunity, you know, to make research participation, you know, available to everybody, you know, independent, you know, of their race, of their ethnicity, of their level of education, of their socioeconomic status. And we are working very hard um, to make sure that we are educating 
all diverse groups um, of individuals about the importance of having their voice represented in research. We want to hear from everybody um, and make sure that their story and that their experiences um, are documented because we wanna make sure that what we learn in PPMI is going to generalize to all people living with Parkinson's disease. Um, and we actually have um, a special task force called the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Task Force that is working with the Recruitment and Retention Committee in PPMI to develop novel and innovative strategies to reach out to underrepresented populations and to encourage them um, to enroll in PPMI online such that their voice um, and their story and their symptom profiles are represented. Is there anything else I forgot to ask her that you want to mention about PPMI? I think it has got tremendous potential um, to be, you know, a game changer. And I think that's why, you know, going back to where we started, you know, it really is um, the study that can change everything because the more that we can learn about risk, who gets Parkinson's, um, who doesn't get Parkinson's and why, the more we can use that information to develop novel therapeutics, um, to develop disease modifying agents and to ultimately prevent Parkinson's long before it starts. Oh, I did forget one other question. This, this study just continues. It doesn't, um, it doesn't have an end date, the enrollment I mean. So um, as, as far as enrollment goes, it's going to be ongoing for several years um, until we reach, you know, our target recruitment numbers. Um, and we're hoping to triple um, the number of participants that are currently participating in clinic, um, as well as to enroll close to 100,000 individuals online. Um, so I believe right now there are about 1,400 individuals that are participating in clinic, and we'd like to get that number closer up to about 4,000. And Dr. Dobkin, where would people go to learn more about the study, whether to enroll or to send a link to someone? Where, where would they visit? I would love to invite everybody listening to this podcast um, to visit the following website, michaeljfox.org backslash PPMI. Um, if you go to that website, there will be more information about the importance and the power of PPMI, how to sign up, how to join this very important initiative, and how to learn more. I also want to encourage anybody and everybody to go to the website and check it out. Um, PPMI Online is open to individuals over the age of 18, um, and we want everybody to participate. We especially want you to participate um, if you have a family member with Parkinson's disease, if you're noticing that you're acting out your dreams in your sleep, um, if you've noticed smell loss, if you have a genetic variant linked to Parkinson's disease, um, and if you're experiencing significant emotional concerns like depression and anxiety, or if you've noticed changes in digestive health, like increased constipation, um, please go to our website, 
please learn more. We'd love to hear from you and we really want you to share your experiences. Well, thank you so much for sharing this uh, valuable information. I know that April is um, Parkinson's Awareness Disease Month, so um, I'm happy to talk to you today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me again. Okay, take care. For all of us at AJMC, thanks for listening. To learn more about these issues, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.